morning. Good to see you here today. Thank you, Fick Kelly. Beautiful job. Take your Bibles, turn again with me to Acts chapter 17, if you would. Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> and we're going to begin reading in verse number 16. In our culture today, it is deemed acceptable to be a Christian as long as you don't get fanatical about it. It's fine to discuss the finer points of theology as long as you keep it general. It's all right to talk about God as long as you keep it general. But when you get to the point that you say that you believe that the Bible should dictate how one lives their life, or you say that some kind of conduct is wrong, then it's countercultural. Everyone can be religious in their own way in our country as long as it's tolerant, as long as we don't say there is one way to God that's superior to another and especially if we don't say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, that's not only true of our culture today. It describes the attitude that Paul encounters as he enters the city of Athens. We've been following the exploits of Paul and Silas on their second missionary journey. And so far it's been tough going, but successful. They've been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, but when they left town, they left the church behind. They moved on to Thessalonica, where they were chased out of town, but many believed. And they traveled on to Berea, where they found many fair-minded listeners. And when the Jews came from Thessalonica and managed to run them out of town, they still left behind a church. Paul left Berea now, and he made the 200-mile journey to Athens. Paul is alone. There's no one with him. He has no support. And he's faced with an intimidating audience. If I could draw a comparison for comparison's sake, it would be like you finding out that you're going to address an audience made up of the faculty of Oxford and Cambridge. That's the kind of situation that Paul found. Look with me, first of all, at Paul's distress in verse 16. It says, now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul was distressed. That's the way the NIV translates that verse, provoked. He was distressed in Athens. But really, distressed is not strong enough. Provoked is probably closer. He was angry. He wandered the streets of the city, and he was overwhelmed with the number of idols. Reportedly, there were some 30,000 idols in Athens. That's almost hard to conceive, 30,000 idols. And although the city was filled with magnificent marble temples and 
sculptures and statues. They were not just mere works of art to Paul. They were evidence of a city given over to idolatry. Every idol was not only a demonstration of the the Athenians' hunger for God, but every idol testified to their ignorance about God. Paul was angry because all around him he saw evidence of people being deceived. If you travel to any place in the world today and you witness the devotion of people to idols, idols that can neither hear them nor help them, you want to cry out. You want to tell them that what they're doing is hopeless and helpless. So here in the center of the world's center of learning, Athens was the most foolish thing that a man could ever create, idols. Notice Paul's discussion beginning in verse 17. It says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews And with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So Paul went to the two places that there were sure to be numbers of people that he could speak to. The synagogue where the Jews met to worship and the marketplace. According to verse 18, in the marketplace, he met up with two prevalent philosophies in Athens. It says, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he says, he seems to be the proclaimer of false gods because he preached to them of Jesus and the resurrection. Paul faced a challenging audience in Athens. Like I said, it was a cultured academic city, much like we would think of Oxford and Cambridge today. These two philosophies are simply two schools of thought who are trying to make sense out of the world apart from God's revelation. The Epicurean viewpoint was one of indulgence. You need to enjoy life. They were practical deists. They believed there may be God's But if there are gods, they're really not involved with mankind. They're far from removed for any kind of concern about mankind. According to the Epicurean, the goal of life was to achieve the maximum amount of pleasure with the minimum amount of pain. They believe that death is the end, extinction with no afterlife. Really, it's pretty modern. It's not very much different from the beer commercial most of you have heard growing up. You only go around once, make sure you get all the gusto you can. Same philosophy. The Stoic viewpoint, on the other hand, was to cultivate indifference because life is a pain and you're going to have to learn to endure it. They were pantheists, that is, they believed that God was in everything. 
There was a divine spirit that was in everything, but the Stoics had no sense of a divine presence with them or any divine guidance in life. That's not so different from today, an age that is dominated by pleasure first, do what pleases me, and avoid the pain philosophy. So these two schools of philosophy were Paul's main audience, and since they didn't know the Bible, you'll notice that he didn't quote any scripture to them. Now, there were two main responses to Paul's claims. First, there were those who found the gospel unreasonable and unsophisticated. Labeling Paul as a babbler. The word really means literally seed picker. Described a bird. It was a derogatory term used to describe a person who went over here and picked up an idea over here and went over here and picked up an idea over here and mixed them all together and then claimed them as their own. They're saying that Paul is a useless mimic. Just passing along worthless bits of information. The Stoics and the Epicureans, although they differed in philosophy from one another, agreed that this newfangled message was not one that would appeal to reasonable men. Others misunderstood it completely. They thought Paul was proclaiming two new gods, Jesus and anesthesius. Anesthesius is the Greek word for resurrection. It's also a woman's name. So they're thinking that Paul's proclaiming two new gods, Jesus and the resurrection, Jesus and his cohort, anesthesius. So they didn't understand at all. But according to verse 19 through 21, because <clears throat> Paul, because Athens loved any kind of thing that was new and novel, Paul was brought to the Areopagus and asked to explain his strange doctrine. They took him and brought him there saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. So the novelty of his message earns Paul an invitation to speak in the intellectual center of the city. Which brings us to the third part, which is Paul's discourse, in verses, beginning in verse 22. It's commonly referred to as the Areopagus Address or the Sermon on Mars Hill. Areopagus means the hill or pagos of Ares. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now Paul's establishing a point of contact with his listeners by pointing out that he knows that they're very religious. The the King James translates those words as very superstitious, but really what he's telling them is, I I know that you're very religious. 
you have a religious interest. He says, as I walked among the many statues to the various gods, and as I've already said, there's some 30,000 in the city, he says, one in particular caught my attention, and that is, it was inscribed to the unknown God. Paul is stating that they are, in effect, admitting their own lack of knowledge, and it is this ignorance to which he now wants to speak. He did not begin with the criticism of idolatry, but focused attention on their obvious hunger for the true God. The true God may have been unknown to them, but they are not unknown to him. Now, some people want to pull this passage out of context and use it as a defense of the modern notion of anonymous Christians. Have you ever heard of the term anonymous Christian? Anonymous Christian, that's a new term. Well, it's actually been around a couple of decades now. People that you may know as pagans or heathens are, were under this term, actually said to be worshiping Christ under another name. And therefore, they should be called anonymous Christians. Under this belief, it doesn't matter if they call themselves Hindus or Buddhists or or Muslims or even animists. If they are sincere and they are devout in their religion, God credits them as if they knew Jesus. That's baloney. Paul was not acknowledging the legitimacy of the Athenians' idol worship, nor should we do so in our world today. In fact, Paul points out three things about the reality of God. First of all, he looks to the past and he says, God is the creator. God is the creator. Some are critical of Paul because he doesn't begin his sermon or drive his sermon from a scriptural basis. But you have to understand that the people of Athens did not know the Hebrew scriptures. So he turns, his, turns their attention first to God as the creator. He tells them that they are literally surrounded by the revelation of God. He says, God who made the world. The world, and the word is literally cosmos, and it means universe. The, word, the God who made the universe and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Marvelous sermon in the song that we sang this morning about God not needing us. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. Virtually everything that Paul says contradicts what the Athenians believe. He says there is one God, not many gods. He says he does not live in a temple. He is not confined 
to a physical place, nor is he dependent upon men to serve him. God is complete. Does he love us? Absolutely. Does he need us? Absolutely not. God needs us just like you need a three-year-old to help you mow the lawn. You don't. On the other hand, the Greek gods that are worshipped by the Athenians, they are weak and they are wicked, just like humans. And yet they live above and beyond humans. Paul presents the God of creation as actively involved in the lives of men and nations. In in fact, the first chapter of the book of Romans, Paul reveals the creation as one of the witnesses that every man has of God's existence. He says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the beginning of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul says that every human is confronted with the truth that this complex universe is too complex to just have happened. Creation constantly points out to man the truth that there is a creator. Because there is a design, there must be a designer. He pointed out to the past, the creator, God is the created. He points to the present and he says God is the sustainer of the world. God portrays, or Paul portrays God as not only the creator, but as the sustainer of the world. He says so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Paul now delivers a death blow to the Greeks' pride and prejudice. They believed that they were a race apart. They were different from every other race in the world. In fact, they said there were two kinds of people in the world, Greeks and barbarians. If you were not a Greek, you were a barbarian. Paul points out that the Greeks are the creation of God, no different and no better than any other race on the earth. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Scripture talks about the foolishness of idols made by human hands. Idols that cannot see, that cannot speak, that cannot hear. And he calls attention to the stupidity of those who make them. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes 
but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Do they, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so it is everyone who trusts in them. We have past, God is the creator. We have the present, God is the sustainer. And we have the future, God is the judge of all. He presented God as the judge, beginning in verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's argument is pretty straightforward. If there is a God who is the creator, and there is, and if there is a God who is the sustainer of the universe, and there is, then that God is the God who ought to be worshipped because it is that God who will be the judge of all. Paul says, I'm going to give you a little advice. God in the past overlooked your ignorance but that time is up it is time to repent judgment day is coming and it's sooner than you think God has appointed the judge the judge is the same person that he raised from the dead and the only person he has raised from the dead is his son Jesus Christ Jesus will be that judge I look to the reception we have. The outcome of this sermon to the intellectuals of Athens was threefold. First, there is derision or ridicule or mockery. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There always seems to be those who ridicule or mock what they cannot understand or what they will not accept. Because the concept of the resurrection was so countercultural to what the Athenians believed, they rejected it out of hand without even a semblance of trying to understand it or see if it was true. They rejected the truth because it wouldn't fit into their comfortable little religious box. Secondly, there was delay. <clears throat> While others said, we will hear you again on this matter. There always seems to be those who hear the word of God. They accept the validity of what's being said. But they say, you know, some other time. By that, most of them really don't care whether they ever hear it again or not. It just means that it is a way of escaping an uncomfortable moment. Kind of reminds me of the words of James found in James chapter 1 and verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who observes his natural face in the mirror. 
for he observes himself and he goes away and immediately he forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. And the third kind of person is those who made a decision. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them is Dionysus, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Some argue that Paul's sermon was not a success because he used worldly wisdom. He didn't use Scripture. But whenever there's a salvation of even one, the message has been a success. In fact, Luke notes that following Paul's address, that some men joined him. Literally, it means stuck to him like glue. In addition, even one of the 30 members of the council himself became a believer. I think it's also worthy of note that Athens is one of the few cities that Paul is not forced to leave. Here's the point for me. Ever find yourself in a place where you need to talk to somebody, especially about the faith, but you're a little bit intimidated? They've got more schooling than you do. They have a bigger degree than you do. Uh, They seem to be smarter than you are. And you're a little bit intimidated. That's when we need to remember the only way an intellectual can be saved is the same way anyone else is saved, by repenting of their sins and turning to the Lord Jesus and accepting him as their personal Savior. It is only when we accept that Jesus is the paid for the penalty of our sins on the cross that we're saved, regardless of who we are, where we came from, or what we've done. Paul wrote later in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for today and thank you for each one that's gathered here. I believe that they're here for a purpose today. I believe that you've brought each one here to do something in their life. So, Father, I pray that you would minister to those who are gathered here. There may be those who are hurting here today. They're hurting emotionally, hurting physically. There are circumstances in their lives that are out of control. And they just need you. Maybe there are those who have never turned their lives over to you, repented of their sins. I pray that you'd help them to realize that 
we're all sinners here. Some of, some of us are saved sinners and others are not because we have chosen not to accept what Jesus has given us. So if you're here this morning and you've never accepted that, I would plead with you this morning before you leave this place to do that. Father, for each believer that's here, I pray that you'd help us to recognize that we really don't have to be intimidated in this world by people who we believe are superior in intellect because we really are all saved the same way and our need is all the same. All we have to do is share what you've done in our lives with others. Father, whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.